This is hell. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. And we are continuing our week-long three-part series, This Is Hell, The Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, a hand-picked selection of conversations never before aired or aired on our home station or heard by the listeners of our home station, Chicago's Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. The discussions we are featuring date from the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic back in 2020, three years ago. Today's and tomorrow's interviews were conducted shortly after public health agencies across the country were advising everyone to stay indoors and only leave your home if absolutely necessary. We were only supposed to do that if we were masked and stayed six feet away from each other. Here in the U.S., during those very first days of the virus, we already seemed to have lost our patience and could not wait to get back to what we called normal, which was never normal to begin with. And the fact that we thought that was normal shows exactly how abnormal society had become. Normal was mass shootings in public U.S. public schools on a regular basis. Normal was families being forced to choose to pay rent for the roof they needed over their heads to protect themselves from the elements or pay for the prescriptions drugs needed to for family fam- for family members to not, you know, die. Normal was inequality being rampant with multi-billionaires being lionized for hoarding their wealth while the poor were vilified for demanding a living wage. Normal was being in a forever war all over the world that was rarely reported in the press, with citizens not even knowing everywhere the U.S. was waging war. Normal was knowing that policing was racialized, but really, there's nothing you can do about it. Normal was the planet heating due to the burning of fossil fuels, and then every year setting a new record for most fossil fuels burned ever. Normal was it suddenly being okay again to openly flaunt white supremacy and privilege, while those same white supremacists insist their privilege does not exist. Normal was a freaking nightmare, yet the media and corporations who benefited and profited from that frightening normal couldn't wait to get right back at it. We were only a little over three weeks into the, what we were erroneously calling a lockdown, but in fact was a voluntary system to keep us safe, and we were already losing it. Sure, restaurants, bars, movie theaters, libraries where people would normally congregate in public, sure, those were closed, but we're not on lockdown with police and members of the military patrolling the streets, checking vaccination cards, and asking everyone outside if their errand they were running was absolutely necessary and to prove it with evidence. We never had that kind of lockdown. What we had was unnecessary services being closed and shut down, but things like grocery and liquor stores were still open for business, and as many people from your household who wanted to go shopping with you definitely could. Go ahead. Go have a great day of shopping. There were no restrictions when it came to grocery stores or liquor stores or what we absolutely needed to survive. In fact, the whole family could go to the store to hoard things like toilet paper all together as a family. Yes, playgrounds were closed, but the acreage around those playgrounds were open for kids to play in all they wanted. Of course, schools were closed, forcing parents to realize how valuable school teachers are, but no worries. Parents would quickly get back to the normal of being disrespectful to educators who teach their kids skills needed to survive in the real world. 
A lot of people were out of work because businesses that depended on in-person employees shut down. However, many adapted and discovered they didn't need all that office space after all, as their workers could do their jobs remotely and actually be more productive, which everybody was shocked to learn. But we were not in anything like the lockdown China was in, a lockdown that was very successful in limiting the number of deaths from COVID in the world's most populated nation. China has more than a billion more people than the U.S. of A. Yet the number of Chinese dead from the pandemic, where the pandemic started and raged for more than a couple of months before it made landfall here, the number of dead in China is a mere fraction of the number of U.S. dead. So lockdowns might have been horrible, but they save people from dying. And here in the United States, we never really had a lockdown per se. Despite all of the freedom we were still granted relative to what other nations around the world were facing, a large portion of the U.S. population went from citizens of the alleged home of the brave to being residents in an insane asylum of people freaking out about rumors that had no basis, in fact, and were justified by perceived motivations that were also not based on any evidence other than paranoia, fear, and hate. We were definitely not not all in this together. We were definitely never in this together. Instead, we were at each other's selfish throats over a non-existent shortage in toilet paper. And you can bet the people who chant USA, USA whenever they get the opportunity, those who fly the biggest stars and stripes from, stripes from their front porches, are also those who immediately stab their fellow pa- patriots in the back over lies they believed about freaking toilet paper. And everyone revealed themselves as living not by the motto, we are all in this together, but dying alone by the axiom of, I got mine, so screw you. So we thought back during the pandemic's earliest days, we thought we'd go back to those earliest days and see how another country that seems far more concerned about public health is, or was at the time, responding to the virus. That's why back on April 6th, 2020, we spoke with Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. Helen's book was written prior to the pandemic, but Cuba was reacting in a way that was very much the opposite of the United States' response. One was doing what it could to protect intellectual property rights, while the other was trying to develop medicines for the entire world. Can you guess which one is which? I know you can. Three days and or three years and five days ago, here's how I introduced that morning's show featuring our talk with Helen on Cuba, an interview that was selected by listeners as one of the, their favorites of 2020 and was replayed during our end of the year best of spectacular. At the time of the conversation we we're about to share, Bernie Sanders had just commended Cuba for their universal health care system, proving to be better prepared for a health crisis like the pandemic than the U.S. was with its for-profit healthcare system. So, on the show, I said, Bernie Sanders was berated for making favorable comments on 60 Minutes about Cuba's healthcare system. Interviewer Anderson Cooper immediately questioned Sanders' praise for Cuba's medical system because, well, you know, if it's Cuban, whatever it is, it is readily dismissible by the U.S. media because it must be communist and therefore evil. Well, it turns out that that Sunday, February 23rd, 2020 interview was rather prescient despite Sanders being attacked for those comments again during the Democratic presidential candidate debate a few days later. 
Now, you probably do not know this, and nobody knew it at the time of our interview, because it was, and still is, not being reported in the U.S. media, despite at least four 24-7 news channels covering the virus every day. But Cuba discovered a wonder drug early on in the pandemic that was addressing the worst aspects of coronavirus. It wasn't curing, it wasn't a vaccine, but the worst symptoms of COVID-19 were being addressed by a vaccine early on, in early April of 2020. Cuba was also sending their medical teams around the world to help combat COVID-19. Meanwhile, the U.S. was begging for retired healthcare workers to return to their old jobs so there will be enough to care for the vast amounts of patients that were expected in emergency rooms that week. So why was the media so dismissive of Bernie Sanders' claims about Cuba's healthcare system being more prepared and doing more to help the global community and surviving COVID-19? And why aren't they reporting? Why weren't they reporting on any of the good Cuban good that Cuban medical teams were doing around the world? And if then-President Trump kept making all these far-too-optimistic statements under the logic that he's trying to give us hope, then why not tell us about the hope of the Cuban wonder drug that seemed to have been doing such a good job around the world? Why weren't we using that drug yet? Simply because we were anti-communists? So, we had Helen on to find out all about what Cuba was doing to fight the virus and why it shouldn't surprise any of us that Cuban healthcare workers were becoming heroes around the world, except for here in the United States, where we had a shortage of healthcare workers. Meanwhile, Cuba was giving their supply of healthcare workers to the service of the world. Helen is a lecturer on economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, economic historian, and again, author of We Are uh, Cuba, how a revolutionary people have survived in a post-Soviet world. Since 1995, Helen has spent uh, time living and researching in Cuba. And you can follow Helen on Twitter, and I suggest you do, at Helen Yaffe. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Dan Hill. Dan, how have you been? It's been a couple of weeks. It's been many moons since I last saw you. So what's new about you? Not much. I talked to my sister last night. It's nice. She lives in the Big Apple. Oh, really? What it's, part? Uh, she lives in something called Park Slope. Oh, yeah. I haven't been because I live in this sleepy burg. <laughs> I live in this cultural backwater, <laughs> the city of broad shoulders, they call it. She's, But, you know, that comes at a price because she's crawling with mice in her expensive apartment. Oh, really? Yeah, she said one looked right at her. <laughs> she murdered one, so that's one down. Murdered one? Was it like well, she premeditated? Set a trap. Well, I mean, in as much as you don't set a trap hoping to fail, she wanted You're to right. achieve, but I think the weight of the thing struck her when she heard it mewling, gasping, because pain is fractal oh. in a way, you know? Well, tell her don't get those sticky traps. Those are far worse because the horror show that. that happens when two mice. Yeah. Are stuck in a sticky trap together I and have well no imagine. food. Oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, it's a, it's she a got nightmare. one of those Zizek-like traps, murder without murder. <laughs> you know, because it has a box. It's like a killing box, and they go in there, and then you don't have to see it. You just hear it. And then she bribed her uh, housemate to take it out of her room so. and throw it out. Exactly. Eesh. Yikes. Yeah, we have a real rat problem over by our house, and I'm no s- joke. Oh my god, it's gotten so bad that the. Uh, 
uh, ground is starting to cave in at certain parts <laughs> over by the trash cans. Because from the weight of the rats? No, from them <laughs> from them burrowing so much underneath. Oh, wow, okay. It's just become like a cave and fallen down. Yeah. Pete had a, a building over on Oakley, I think, where the sidewalk actually collapsed because they had burrowed so much underneath the sidewalk. She's got He's got a building right here where they're getting in through the windows. When we came <laughs> in today, the windows have been busted out, presumably by a gargantuan king rat. I assume so. And by the way, uh, Mel had a record night the other night. Yeah. He ate th- he, he killed three rats. That's pretty good. One night within a couple of hours. Ate one entirely, ate half of the other one, then just killed the I other one. I could see you're busting with a father-like pride. That's cute. <laughs> I yeah. am. I'm very proud of Mel yeah. for killing all those rats that yeah, we don't need in the him. back. Yeah. So, Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? This is in relation to our 20th anniversary commemoration of the war on Iraq. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins... Your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want, the This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, and the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email chuck at thisishell.com. But as always, we will be announcing this week's winner at the end of this week's show, so we have to have your answer by the end of tomorrow. Show. If your answer is our favorite, like I said, you get any piece of swag that you want from thisishell.com, and you can see all of our stuff when you click on support. Coming up, Cuba's immediate response to the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic we will have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Look around. This is hell. This is hell. Cuba is a very misunderstood nation where outsiders apply irrelevant economic indicators to display the nation's lack of development. It's almost as if there is an intentional cluelessness when it comes to Cuba, as if the revolution never existed and no longer does. It's as if outsiders can't wrap their minds around the fact that Cubans like Cuba. And right now, what's not being understood about Cuba is their response to the global pandemic. Here to help us understand Cuba better, lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, Helen Yaffe is author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe. That's Y-A-F-F-E. Welcome to This Is Hell, Helen. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to join your show. Thank you so much for being on our show. Uh, Let's start with some of the more breaking news. On Friday, the Associated Press reported for two years the Trump administration has been trying to stamp out one of Cuba's signature programs, state-employed medical workers treating patients around the world in a show of soft power that also earns billions in badly needed hard currency. Before we even go farther in that story, is this an expression of soft power by Cuba? Is that an? How do you feel about the way that the AP frames that? Well, um, it is true that Cuba's um, medical exports or the export of medical professionals has been a very significant source of revenues for the country, but we have to locate that historically. That only emerged. Um, after the revolution had practiced medical internationalism for several decades. 
So it was um, very early on, the revolution took place, obviously, 1st of January, 1959, when Batista flees and the revolutionary seized power. In, um, at that point, there were something like 6,000 um, medics or doctors in Cuba, and half of them left. They joined the exodus of some million professionals leaving the island, mainly for the United States, although not exclusively. And yet, the following year, in 1960, there was a very severe earthquake in Chile, and the Cubans sent some of their precious uh, very needed medics to go and um, to contribute to emergency medical aid there. Then in 1993, the Cubans set a t sent a team to help the newly independent Algerian state set up a public healthcare system. Um, consequently, many people will know that the Cubans sent soldiers to assist national liberation struggles, particularly in Africa, but they were um, almost always accompanied by medical personnel who provided much needed assistance to populations who, who had absolutely no medical access. So this kind of pattern continued. Um, so the, the form it took was either assistance in an emergency situation or um, with, in collaboration with a, a state to helping to set up a public healthcare infrastructure. Uh, however, it was only after the relationship with Venezuela developed under President Hugo Chavez and the famous uh, Oil for Doctors program that Cuba um, started to uh, earn significant revenues from the export of medical professionals. And that was a proposal that came um, from the Venezuelan side. And, you know, when we um, see the importance that it's had in Cuba, there's a lot of cynicism and a lot of um, uh, skepticism about the fact that, you know, Cuba, oh, Cuba's earning out of this medical assistance. But we also have to take account of the fact that the United States blockade, or embargo as they call it, um, is not only preventing trade between Cuba and the US, it's extraterritorial in nature. So that means that although it's a US legislation which is not adopted overseas, and in fact rejected by most of the countries in the world, um, it is still applied, it is imposed on the rest of the world. And that means that Cuba's possibilities in terms of pursuing normal trade relations are completely hindered. And hence, the export of medical professionals has become um, a key revenue, as we've said. But if we think about the nature of that export, it is also entirely consistent with the principles of the revolution, which have put healthcare and education at its heart. They are key principles. The idea that healthcare and education are universal, that they are free, that everyone is given access, and they are not existing in Cuba as part of a parallel system where the wealthy can opt out into private care. So essentially, the, the export of medical professionals has enabled Cuba to reap the benefits of its socialist investments in health and medicine and has provided much needed revenue in the context of a US blockade which prevents normal trade with the world. So is, I know this is a weird way to phrase it, but is, uh, is Cuba more than a medical threat to US global domination than it is a military threat to US global domination? I know that's a weird way to, way to phrase it, but I, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I mean, let's be clear, the Cubans have never been a military threat to the United States. I mean, there is uh, no possible way that this tiny little island, which had 
you know, some six million people at the time of the revolution, a population that's got close to doubling since then. It has not presented any sort of military threat um, towards the United States. The, the Cubans have um, a claim against the US. They have a document with a lot of detail provided about uh, acts of terrorism and sabotage launched from the US or with the support of US authorities, which have claimed the life of, I can't remember the exact figure, but it's something like 3,400 Cubans over uh, the period of the revolution. Now, the same cannot be said in, um, in the other direction. So let's be clear that Cuba has never presented a, um, a military threat. What Cuba has presented is a political and ideological threat. Um, and there is uh, someone called Gail Reed who is um, involved with MEDIC, which is a medical cooperation between the US and, and Cuba. Um, and she pointed out that, you know, um, healthcare globally, the, the private healthcare sector operates on the same principle as all, you know, free market exchange. It's demand and supply. So in order to keep demand um, high, you have to, which which means that the price that people will pay to access medical care will be high. You have to uh, limit the supply. Now, what Cuba does with its um, immense program of graduating medics and um, all sorts of healthcare professionals, because it's not just doctors, um, is it raises the supply of medics around the world and it undermines the free market, the capitalist market, the commodification of medical care. Um, so, you know, when you have the US, uh, this, this incredible battle you're having in the US just to establish a basic system of public health care, um, which doesn't, you know, cost the earth and isn't run by insurance companies that will, will uh, scandal and, and um, do anything they can not to pay up and so on. This incredible battle you're having is undermined by the example of Cuba as a small Caribbean nation subject to hundreds of years of colonialism and then imperialism and then the brutal punitive US blockade is able to provide health care for all but not only that, has sent some 400,000 healthcare professionals around the world in over 160 countries. So the Cuban, ex uh, the threat of Cuba is the example of an alternative way of organizing society and a mode of development that puts human welfare at its center. And that is um, both the, you know, links to your question about soft power and links to your question about the Cuban threat to the US. In your book, We Are Cuba, you write that for years, students of Cuba were conditioned to believe that the revolution's trajectory could only be understood by reference to Fidel Castro's biology or psychology. Then Fidel ailed, he resigned, he died, but the revolution lived on. Raul Castro took over. He was referred to as the brother, as it, if that explained his governance, the reformer, as if a peaceful transition to capitalism was assured. Raul came, he reformed, he resigned, and the socialist system prevailed. So if it wasn't the... Castro brothers, who explained the endurance of the system, then other factors must account for its survival into the post-Soviet world. Have we been too distracted by all the talk about what the revolution was doing wrong to inquire about 
what it was getting right and how. So in February, during a 60 Minutes interview, Bernie Sanders was asked about comments he made back in 1995 saying Cubans did not join the U.S. in overthrowing Castro during the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion because the educated kids and because uh, they educated their kids and they gave them health care and totally transformed society. Is that what uh, Sanders was considering his, his comments? Was he considering what Cuba got right and how they got it right? And should we consider uh, what rights abusing countries get right and get wrong? In reference to Sanders' comments, I mean, they, they were just such a small concession to what Cuba has achieved um, over the last six decades. And yet he was vilified which shows really how um, utterly um, uncompromising the political dialogue is among the US establishment in relation to Cuba. And it's quite extraordinary. Um, you know, re diplomatic relations were established with all the other communist and socialist countries uh, well before Cuba. And since they've been established with Cuba, Obama um, really just made some tweaks on the edge of the blockade. Um, and, you know, the Trump administration has gone back to full, full on hostility and that allows this dialogue. Um, it, 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 it means that if someone like Sanders comes out and makes a small concession to recognizing that there must be a story to be told in Cuba, he's, the reaction is so um, vitriolic. The, the fact is that, you know, there is an explanation we need to find here. We were always told that Fidel Castro was the revolution. I mean, from my experience of reading English language texts that dominate the reading lists in, in English language universities, um, it was as if Fidel Castro himself was running around and making all the decisions and, and putting people in prison himself and all the rest of it. And yet, they, that narrative is um, unable to answer so many questions and explain so much of what goes on in Cuba and in Cuba's projection to the world, like the medical internationalism. It's simply not tenable to suggest that the reason the, the Castro brothers, as the terminology is used, or the Cuban revolutionary government remains in power is because of oppression. And that argument is becoming harder and less tenable as more um, you, people from the United States visit Cuba and they find a vibrant society where people express themselves, where um, art and culture are, um, you know, uh, are flourishing. You know, Cuba has led the world in so many aspects to do with art and culture. Now, in a, oppressed people, you just will not see that form of expression. Um, you know, I think it's it's very hard for people who have a commitment to capitalism or neoliberal ideology and um, only accept the political expression of that economic system, which we see in the advanced capitalist countries. So if you think that only a multi-party electoral system, even if both parties are very difficult to separate, even if they both, uh, you know, essentially defend private interests, if that is your only model of democracy, of course, you'll look at Cuba and see that um, that doesn't exist in Cuba. But, you know, um, the Cubans have a different form of democracy. A occasionally, you know, you'll have a, an article breaking through to the mainstream where people recognize that. One of the things I've tried to do in my book is to represent, to examine and, rep and reflect on this incredible process of 
popular engagement and participation in the daily decisions in government policies which Cubans have the ability to do. Because I could ask you, do you feel that you, fit, you live in a democracy? But if I then asked you, did I think, did you think rather that your opinion would have an impact on any government authority, local or national, on their policy? The chances are you'll say no. Whereas in Cuba, they have um, constantly a series of major national consultations and public debates where everyone gets to sit and discuss and record their critique and put their reviews and opinions. And these are assessed. And we can see that this is not just a public relations exercise, because, for example, some of the recent documents that have been produced, um, a document called the conceptualization of the socialist model, 93% of that was changed following critique, debate, and p opinions of people who were consulted on that document. Another document, at the moment, Cuba's going through a, a, a set of reforms. They call it updating the economic system. Um, this was based on a set of guidelines which were produced and put out for public consultation. Nine, nearly nine million pe people participated. So when you take off the, el the very elderly, the infirm and children, that is, most people in Cuba participated in discussions about what was being proposed for the future direction of the country. And 68% of that document was subsequently changed. And that is the roadmap for the Cuban reforms. So on the question of democracy, um, we should not uh, pretend that it's a black and white question. There, um, you know, it, it is a political question. The question is, who has power uh, and to do what and for whom? So uh, it's much more complex. We are speaking with lecturer in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, economic historian Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. Helen's teaching focuses on Latin American and Cuban development. Helen's also a visiting fellow at the Latin America and Caribbean Center in the University of Glasgow. Since 1995, Helen has spent living uh, time living and researching in Cuba. Her doctoral thesis was adopted for publication as the book Che Guevara, the Economics of Revolution in 2009. Helen is also co-author of 2017's Youth Activism and Solidarity, The Nonstop Picket Against Apartheid, co-authored by Dr. Gavin Brown, who is in the Geography Department at the University of Leicester. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe. Helen, can you hear me? Yes, I can. I can hear you much better now. Thanks. Okay, excellent. So one of the things that you were just mentioning, and I just want to follow up on this, is that uh, it, it, the way that the United States or the way that outsiders judge Cuba is based on the country's, you know, it's through a capitalist lens, basing it on the country's GDP. And if the country's GDP isn't doing well, then those people must not be happy. They must not be getting what they need. It's certainly not judged on uh, you know, public and political participation, as you were saying uh, in your kind of barometer, what metrics you're using when it comes to Cuba. So what does that say about the United States when it comes to democracy, when we judge a country's effectiveness and the way it provides services for its people through gross domestic prod, uh, product and not through political participation? I think we need to be clear that the um, question is about what is the objective of development, of, uh, of any given development model. Now, if the objective um, is economic growth um, measured in, you know, 
profit, productivity, um, wealth, creation for private interests, then um, GDP is, a, is probably an adequate measure, although it has come under criticism from many academics for since actually it was introduced in the sort of 1940s. But, you know, um, we would fail to understand anything about Cuba or to assess it on its own terms. So um, if we only take GDP as a measure of success or failure, um, I prefer to do what I call what's called an imminent critique. What were the aims and objectives of the Cuban revolution? And how successful have they been in achieving those? What obstacles have they faced? And what um, solutions have they sought to those problems? So um, really, um, I think it's fundamental to understand the Cuban revolution at its heart has um, key principles to strive for national sovereignty, which we can only understand in the context of a small island nation that was um, under the yoke of Spanish colonialism and then US imperialism for centuries. Um, we need to recognize that in order to understand why uh, national sovereignty or independence uh, is so important to the Cuban revolutionaries. And the other aspect is social justice. Um, so for the Cubans, what motivates their uh, development program or their development paradigm are those two aspects. They will often take measures which seem to go contrary to uh, improving GDP because those measures might violate social justice or national sovereignty. So, you know, rather than just opening up to foreign investment in the sort of um, uh, to, to pour into Cuba in the uncontrolled rampant way that most of Latin America and Central America have done, uh, particularly since the neoliberal period, the Cubans have controlled their natural resources. They have a long line of uh, companies in other countries that are waiting to invest and they are meticulously assessing every proposal to also make sure that uh, invest, foreign investment in Cuba is not based on um, cheap labor and uh, sloppy environmental standards. So also in terms of the reform process where they have uh, legalized the um, uh, development of small and medium-sized businesses and they have um, shifted a lot of people from state sector employment into self-employment, they have reined those measures in when they believed that it was detrimental to the uh, uh, well-being of the poorest section of the population. And they've done those kind of things repeatedly. In the 2000s period, there was a, a, a moment, an episode um, in Cuba called the Battle of Ideas, which has been totally misunderstood and misrepresented, in my view, um, by outsiders where they, there has been any examination of this process, because mostly it's not been known about or examined. Um, and it, it was an incredible program. Um, while Cuba was recovering from the special period of the 1990s, the economic uh, catastrophe that they incurred with the collapse of the Soviet bloc, and as soon as they were able to um, harness some more revenues and start the economy was starting to improve. They invested in massive programs to make sure that nobody in Cuba was being left behind. And they went house to house. They took the weight 
and measurement of every single child in the country, every under 16 year old, to try and find out where there were children suffering from malnutrition um, and to then have sent teams of investigators to work out why. Was it because their fridge was broken, uh, therefore they couldn't store fresh meat? Was it because they had no one in their household at work? What was the situation? And they, you know, these incredible pro social programs which cost nobody knows how much and which will not have helped to raise GDP, but that was not the uh, objective of the revolutionary government at that time. So I think, you know, if you want to just assess Cuba on GDP, I mean, actually, if you look back over the whole period of the revolution and you compare it to Latin America, its neighbors, we should not be preparing comparing Cuba to um, the advanced capitalist countries. Um, if you compare it to its neighbors, it hasn't done badly at all. If you look at the devastation wrecked on Latin America in the 1980s of the so-called lost decade, which mostly went up to the middle of the 1990s, then you can see that even under those um, statistics, you know, Cuba's performance hasn't been uh, as shameful as many commentators make out. But if you look at what it's achieved in terms of social welfare indicators, human development, Cuba is a small Caribbean nation which is um, uh, uh, categorized by the United Nations to have uh, achieved high development. It's also the um, world-leading country in terms of achieving sustainable development. In 2006, the World Wildlife Fund pinpointed Cuba as, at that point, the only country that had achieved sustainable development, which means it was live, living within the carrying capacity of its ecosystem, so not destroying more than, more quickly than the Earth could reproduce itself, but also raising the standard of living of its population. And those are, um, in a sense, dangerous and inspiring uh, examples or, or, or facts about Cuba. Why dangerous? Because actually it makes people raise their eyebrows and say, hold on, maybe we're doing things wrong. Maybe we should have a look at what Cuba's getting right. And inspiring because it shows that so often we're told that, you know, you can't change anything, there's nothing you can do. And the story of the Cuban revolution is, is really um, one of a, a small oppressed uh, population that rose up and took matters into its own hands. Um, and, and has really, you know, world-leading biotech sector. It has more doctors per person than anywhere in the world. It has more doctors overseas than the World Health Organization. It has incredible record in art and culture. So I think there's definitely a story there that says Cuba's getting something right. I'm really enjoying our conversation because every answer that you give, I come up with seven more follow-up questions that I didn't write down <laughs> beforehand. So I'm really enjoying this. You write that despite meeting most of the sustainable development goals set by the UN in 2015, Cuba's development strategy is not upheld as an example. These contradictions require explanation. You then cite Isabel Allende, director of the Higher Institute for International Relations, telling you in Havana, quote, Cuba is a mystery. It is true. But you have to try to understand that mystery. Why is it so significant that Cuba met those 2015 goals? Well, um, you, you know, because these have been set by the United Nations, which is a, um, a forum, which an umbrella for the world. And they've set these very ambitious goals. They're very hard to pinpoint in terms of, you know, a target or when, do, when can we say success has been achieved. But um, 
these are considered internationally to be goals that are needed in order to, you know, tackle global poverty, to tackle um, environmental destruction and basically to preserve the future of our planet, which is in jeopardy. Um, so I think that's what that, you know, I put that in the introduction because that's what I've tried to contribute towards, to help the reader understand what the Cuban perspective has been. So in every chapter, um, in uh, you know, Battle of Ideas, uh, Biotechnology, the Energy Revolution, when Cuba was the first country in the world to switch to entirely energy-saving bulbs and, and all sorts of other things that happened, I have tried to um, interview some of the key Cubans who were involved in that process. So youth leaders, uh, scientific um, researchers, the director of institutes, uh, political policy makers, and so on. Because it's really important to see what they were trying to achieve as, as well as you know the obstacles they face. Um, and I think, well, I hope that my book will go some way towards filling in those gaps that we have. You listed some of the many things outsiders are unaware of when it comes to what is really happening within Cuba. The uh, Battle of Ideas from 2000, as you were saying, the Energy Revolution from 2005, the acceleration of Cuban medical internationalism and the development of Cuba's biotechnology sector. Uh, the Battle of Ideas, as a review of the Museum of the Battle of Ideas in Cardenas explains, was related to the mass mobilization and revitalization of national unity that the Elian Gonzalez case inspired among Cuban citizens. The Battle of Ideas were an expression of Cuban national sovereignty. Why did Elian Gonzalez change Cuba, and did that battle of ideas have any impact on last year's new constitution? So, uh, to deal with the first part of your question, um, Elian Gonzalez was this uh, little five-year-old boy. His mother decided to leave Cuba on a, um, a very unsafe raft. It was at the very the end of the 1990s, which is known as the Special Period. In this period. Cuban GDP had collapsed by 35%. If you think about what the projections are now with the global catastrophe, the pandemic and the global impact, um, I mean, you would realize how devastating 35% fall in GDP is. 80% uh, of trade or 86% of trade and investment Cuba lost. The question of Cuba's survival was in the balance and certain measures were taken and uh, collective responses were sought, like, for example, the organic farming uh, movement and so on. Um, but uh, also many people, uh, many Cubans decided to emigrate. It was the decision is made far easier for them because um, unlike the rest of the world and, you know, the thousands of Mexicans who try to enter the United States every year without paperwork, uh, Cubans were at that point given um, automatic residency in the United States and within one year citizenship. So Elian Gonzalez was taken by his mother on an unsafe raft and uh, there were some people say 12, some 13 people on the raft, most of them unfortunately tragically drowned. So. On the one hand, it was a, a terrible, tragic, uh, personal, uh, rather tragic family uh, situation because Elian's father, who was separated from his mother, didn't know that he was being taken out of the country. And immediately that he found out that Elian had survived and was in um, Miami, he made a claim to reunite him, which is the norm under international jurisdiction. Now, the Cubans responded with a campaign 
a massive mobilization. And it was a key moment, I think, because until that point, the Cubans were in um, with in the sort of gear of resisting, survival and resistance, getting their heads down, search, searching for, uh, trying to resolve problems on a day-to-day -day basis and getting through that terrible period. But the, the battle for Elian saw a switch in gear. They went from resisting to insisting, insisting that Elian be returned to his father, insisting that you know Cuba being given um, its, its recognition internationally be treated like an equal. And Behind the scenes, while the battle for to return Elian was going on in Cuba and children were marching and sports people and everyone was out mobilizing the street, behind the scenes, uh, a group, Fidel Castro convened a group of young youth leaders um, to say, we need to examine what happened. What, what is the situation in our barrios and in our houses that people are prepared to risk their lives on a raft to go to the United States. And that is when the investigation started, where they went literally door to door, finding out what problems people had um, and trying to resolve them whenever that was possible. Then that made them look at the situation in schools. They saw that a lot of teachers had left the profession um, and schools, you know, you had classrooms of 40 children. And they had, within the battle of ideas, a revolution, uh, education revolution. And as a consequence of that, um, class sizes were reduced to uh, 15 and uh, 20. So I think it's 20 for primary and 15 for secondary schools, which is phenomenal. I mean, you know, even in Britain, we have primary class schools of uh, up to 40 students. So um, all of these things uh, took place under the battle of ideas. In, in relation to um, your question about how this might have played into the uh, new constitution, I think um, the battle of ideas saw its moment and it was, uh, you know, um, some of the programs that were introduced were institutionalized, others had run their course and they ended. But what it did is re-emphasize uh, the role of youth in the revolution and the ability of the revolution to constantly rejuvenate its leadership and its activism. And secondly, it re um, sort of validated the importance of mass mobilization in Cuba and the idea that people must not be left behind, no matter how difficult the economic circumstances. We are always told these stories about how Cuba is a police state, how people are forced to follow policies almost at gunpoint. If you do, if you dissent in any way, you are thrown into prison. These are all the stories that we are told. How does the socialist revolution in Cuba include those who might otherwise want to be excluded from a socialist system? of ideas is a really good example, as I um, point out in the book. So um, the, in this uh, revolution in education um, and the battle of ideas, it relied on um, young people who were outside work and employment. In other words, young people who were, as Fidel saw it, potentially, um, you know, going to hang around, commit crime and end up in prison. And that was actually, it was a survey that the Cubans did of the prisons and the young people in prisons finding out what the you know how they ended up there what the professions of their parents were and so on that led to some of the later battle of ideas programs um so that i mean that it has been one feature of the revolution to reincorporate sectors uh, within new programs to give them new agency i knew people during the battle of ideas who had been 
you know, involved in the youth communist movement and, and were uh, disaffected and had dropped out. But when I went back to Cuba during the uh, battle of ideas, they said to me, no, we, we've got to mobilize. This is really important. In relation to your question about a police state, I mean, this is an easy stick with which to beat Cuba. Um, and clearly there are people who are in prison for opposing the government. But one clarification I'd like to make is they are not in, in prison because of fought crimes. Um, you know, they are in prison for violating the constitution. And, and this is also associated with, uh, or very, um, very tightly linked with the fact that there is a Cam a concerted operation or campaign by the United States to create an internal opposition in order to affect regime change. Um, most people will know about this from the earlier period, but perhaps they don't realize that, you know, under the, the Bush uh, junior um, regime in the United States, they started to, you know, they had uh, these different programs of free Cuba program, which, which had a plan for removing everyone in the government and um, imprisoning anyone who'd ever been in the Communist Party and so on when the US would, you know, arrive in, in, in Cuba um, in response to some, I don't know, domestic process or something. And, um, and basically, you know, split up the, the uh, public health care and education and, and introduce a market-based system. So um, these programs, uh, Bush ended up spending 20 million a year on uh, regime change programs. And that is money that is agreed, approved in the US Congress and uh, the budget. And Obama carried on with that level of investment. I mean, they see it as an investment, right? Because they're investing in you know, undermining the um, Cuban revolution. Now, given that the average wage in Cuba is, I don't know, they've gone up slightly, but we always used to say $20 a month. And there's all this money sloshing around from um, US government agencies and through different, you know, third party organizations and NGOs and so on. It is, um, A, incredible that there isn't a viable opposition, internal opposition within Cuba. Um, and I think it's testament to the level of um, ideological commitment uh, and, you know, dedication to the the revolutionary government and also the idea of socialism. And secondly, it is actually incredible. There is so much um, liberty in Cuba. People will say, oh, no, in Cuba, they have no freedom. But if you go to Cuba and you walk along the Malecon in Havana, someone will come up to you and say, oh, you know, I hate the revolution. And they're able to do that. They're free to do that. So, you know, there's a kind of hypocrisy there. Um, given that Cuba has been subject to 60 years of acts of sabotage and terrorism and attempts at regime change, you know, we can't be surprised that there are um, elements of, you know, civil liberties that are restricted. What we should be surprised of is how actually open the Cuban society is. And you mentioned market reforms. You even point those back to the post-Soviet special period when you write the economy was restructured for reinsertion into global capitalist markets without relinquishing socialism, while the planning system was restored and adapted to the new conditions. Why doesn't inclusion in the market simply undermine Cuban socialism? How much fear is there in Cuba of a capitalist market ending the Soviet or the Soviet, the socialist revolution? Well, you know, what Cuba's managed to do 
is to incorporate in the international capitalist market, but without relinquishing socialism, because the state retains a monopoly on international trade, and that is absolutely fundamental. What it means is that you're not, um, first of all, you're not, you're not decentralizing, you're not seeing the process that you saw in the former Soviet countries where state-owned enterprises are suddenly the private property of whoever happened to be managing them for the state, and then they can you know, operate on a profit-based system. So um, the, the state still controls uh, production and distribution, very importantly, in Cuba. Um, and when they engage in with capitalist international market, the revenue goes to the state. And it's the, that revenue that the government uses to continue its investments in um, healthcare and education. I believe Cuba has among the highest statistics in the world for the proportion of GDP spent on healthcare and um, education. So um, the question of, you know, this question is raised sometimes in relation to the Cuban medics that go abroad. And this criticism is that, oh, well, uh, the, country, the host country where the, the healthcare professionals go pay the Cuban government. They don't pay the Cuban medics uh, individually. And then and the Cuban government keeps some 80 percent of uh, that payment and pays the medics 20%. And, you know, that is correct. But the whole idea is that uh, the state uses that revenue to, to continue to, um, you know, to invest in the social welfare system. None of those medics have paid um, anything for their own education in Cuba. And they are confident that their children will go for university education entirely free. And um, they don't, 96% of Cubans own their own home. If they pay rent, they're legally not allowed to pay more than 5% of their income. Um, you know, access to sport and culture is extremely cheap, heavily subsidized, likewise transport. So it's very difficult to, to look at things like a doctor's wage and make a conclusion, because if you gave a financial uh, value to all of the things that all Cubans get as uh, free, you know, free access to, then actually the equivalent salary, salary would be much higher. We should know in terms of these questions, you can't eat money. What matters is not the amount of salary, it's what you can obtain with that salary and what standard of living that gives you. And you can't shoot a virus, and we've apparently spent more of our money on the military-industrial complex than on, on our medical infrastructure, which has gotten us in the situation that we're in right now. In that original AP story I was mentioning earlier, the, it reports that the coronavirus pandemic has brought a reversal of fortune for Cuban medical diplomacy, as doctors have flown off on new missions to battle COVID-19 in at least 14 countries, including Italy and the tiny principality of Andorra on the Spanish-French border, burnishing the island's international image in the middle of a global crisis and putting aside for a second whether that is a reversal of fortune for Cuba and not just a continuing of the fortune for Cuba. Uh, while this made the AP on Friday, this is not making the nightly news. And I, I didn't see any reporting of any good Cuba has been doing so far when it comes to the novel coronavirus 2019. This is not the first report. There are many more. There are even reports of a Chinese wonder drug being used in Italy, around the world. Newsweek even cites a Cuba biotech expert, Luis Herrera Martinez, saying the use of interferon alpha-2b recombinant prevents aggravation and complications in patients reaching that stage that ultimately can result in death. And that is according to a recent 
Yale University Press blog feature written by you, Helen Yaffe. Uh, and so <laughs> how much promise does this drug show? Is the cure or a cure out there that we are not learning about here in the States because we have a news and media block blockade as well as a trade blockade when it comes to Cuba? So I just need to clarify a few things. This is not a, Q, a Chinese drug. This is a, a Cuban um, antiviral product. Right. Um, and since I wrote the blog, some people have contacted me saying, oh, Wikipedia doesn't say that the Cubans, you know, have a manufacturer for this. And there are other manufacturers. So just to be clear, the Cubans were working with interferons um, at the same time as uh, biotech companies in the, the West. So um, others had developed interferon alpha 2b. What the Cubans did is carry on working with it and uh, managed to get, uh, as they say, 99% purity, which means it's very effective and it's um, low toxicity and quite safe. They have used interferon alpha 2b um, for hepatitis, uh, I think it's B and C, and for... Um, shingles for HIV and AIDS and various other things. So um, when the outbreak of COVID-19 began, the Cuban, uh, sorry, the Chinese National Public Health Commission um, instructed a, a Cuban-Chinese joint venture, which was already producing it, to increase production because it wanted to adopt it among this array of products it was, um, you know, experimenting with in a sense or trying to use to combat um, COVID-19. And um, this was a, the Cubans have been producing this in Cuba since 1986, but in 2003, they set up a joint venture in China, uh, which was producing the same thing among many other products. And there's a whole chapter in my book about how interferons um, the work that the Cubans did with interferons in 1980 was what launched their biotech industry. It was a catalyst. But they, they set out on that road with assistance from U.S. medical scientists and European medical scientists. So the Cubans have never claimed to be original with that. They've also not claimed that, COVID, that um, interferon alpha-2b is a wonder drug for COVID-19 because that is it's way too early to prove it. What we can see is that the Chinese um, National Public Health Commission has put interferon now at the top of the list of recommended antiviral drugs for treating COVID-19. So it seems that it is producing good results um, in China and elsewhere. Um, and now 15 countries around the world have um, requested Cuba to get hold of this. And the Cubans are working with the Chinese on a vaccine, but again, so is the rest of the world. Um, and that, that is still work to be done. So you write how in March 1981, six Cubans spent 12 days in Finland with the Finnish doctor, Kari Cantrell, who in the 1970s had isolated interferon from human cells and had shared the breakthrough by declining to patent the procedure. The Cubans learned to produce large quantities of interferons. What does that say about this whole process when they declined to patent the procedure? Why not patent the procedure and get rich, maybe even help out the economic conditions within Cuba? Yeah, I mean, this was um, uh, Carrie Cantel, who was the first person to be able to sort of extract interferon from its human uh, material. He was the person who didn't um, 
uh, copyright or patent the the procedure and he he put it out there for everyone but um yeah i mean you know it, it impacts the world right the decision i mean i have written a bit about the us uh capitalist and capitalist um biotech industry and you know, it, it holds back medical science globally and therefore impacts humanity when you introduce market mechanisms to medical science. And in fact, the US biotech industry, which was the first in the world, um, is set up around the whole notion of speculative uh, um, investment and venture capital. And it is inherently profit driven. And that makes it in some ways very unproductive. It was not until 2009 that the US biotech industry achieved profit from the sales of its products. How did it keep going? Through speculation, through um, selling shares and, and, and basically totally non-productive um, um, financial mechanisms. The um, Cuban industry is completely different. It's entirely state owned. Um, all of the revenues go back into the state. It's integrated with the public healthcare system. So they have a very quick movement, which has proven vital in the article um, that you were reading from. I talked about how they used it for the dengue outbreak. Um, and that was, you know, within weeks of the Cubans working out how to produce interferons. So there's a very quick movement from the laboratory to testing to public health use. And that is what drives the development of their industry. Now, the Chinese very quickly after the COVID-19 outbreak put the DNA mapping of, of the virus on uh, uh, the Internet for everyone to share. And that was also vitally important. Had this happened in, um, you know, in, uh, in the United States, I don't know whether they would have done that or maybe they would have, you know, charged for access to that information. So I think that we have to be clear that um, the, the commodification of medical science costs lives and we all uh, suffer as a consequence. And oddly, they're not saying that on CNN today. We have been speaking with lecturer in economics and uh, in economic and social history at the University of Glasgow, Helen Yaffe, author of We Are Cuba, How Revolutionary People Have Survived in a Post-Soviet World. You can follow Helen on Twitter at Helen Yaffe, one last question for you, Helen, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell. The question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. Can the pandemic change world opinion, change U.S. opinion toward Cuba such that there is no longer a sustainable blockade and an isolated nation like Cuba? I'd like to hope so. I mean, we saw a heroic effort of the Cubans in um, combating Ebola in West Africa, which was recognized by Obama when he announced rapprochement. But the world seemed to have forgotten. Let's hope so. I think right now is the time to demand an end for the US blockade. And really, that's down to um, particularly you guys in the United States. So to all listeners, um, I think that that is an absolute priority in this moment when Cuba is leading the global fight against COVID-19. Helen, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show. This is not only an amazing book, the uh, blog post that you had at Yale Press is also really fascinating. All of our listeners throughout this whole COVID situation should be reading Helen's work. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this week. Thank you so much for being on. Thanks for the invite. You've been listening to a This Is Hell interview. For more interview, Hell. And to support the show, visit thisishell.com.
So, Dan, are you surprised that not even a pandemic can stop anti-communism? His ideology is very strong. It's very difficult. It's like a tornado. You can't really stop. You either have to be pro-pandemic or anti-communism. Which is it? You got to choose which of those which two. Which side are you on? You got to figure it out. Oh, uh, and so you are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. I was about to tell you something that I'm supposed to tell you off air. All of a sudden, it just popped into my head. If what you just heard about Cuba from Helen Yaffe was unlike anything else you heard or saw or read at the beginning of the pandemic. And if that makes you realize that, yes, the willful ignorance of the U.S. press about a nation 90 miles off our coast proves this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time this week and his podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for a completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. I know we have another uh, answer on Discord. I don't know about where else. Yeah, we got answers. Oh, this sweet. week's question from Hell is, what kind of shock and awe tactics do you employ to get what you want? Over Facebook way, SLS answers our question with a question. What kind of, uh, he asks, uh, what on earth makes you think I get what I want? This is Hell. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. David I answers charm offensive slash offensive charm. <laughs> we got a few new ones on Patreon. Uh, Riley J says revealing Quato. You know what that is? I had to look it up. It's from Total Recall. It's that puppet that comes off of that guy. And it's like, Quade, get to the reaction. So this is a joke I made during the Patreon monologue oh, about okay. the huge hernia that I have right oh, now that's sticking like out of me. Yes. Looks up so I want to get one of those baby dolls. <laughs> From like yeah. a Salvation Army down the street, yeah. and then glue the parts on uh, my hernia nasty. before <laughs> before my st- surgery. Yeah, you should. Because I thought it would be open your mind, Quinn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Looking like Chucky. That's <laughs> yeah. a good one. Then it does look like Chucky. It does look like Chucky. I Puppets. wonder if it's just like recycled Chucky. Yeah, it's probably they had Chucky lying around at the movie Magic Factory. Because I always heard that the ELO spaceship was the Parliament. Mothership, oh. and they just used it from one show to the next. Well, they would use the old ones, like the Frankenstein's Laboratories, and a lot of those old 30s, 40s movies. Oh, right, for yeah. all their props on the yeah, set. It's That's just right. The same stuff. Yeah, exactly. It's just sitting somewhere in a warehouse. Kind of neat. Uh, what, a, right. what a side tangent on Quato. Yeah, Quato. Uh, Fabio L uh, echoes SLS by saying, I don't get what I want. Uh, and then over, yeah, Discord way, we've got. Uh, user Uridoff, who answers uh, synchronized farts. Uh, very nice. That's very classy. And that, and uh, classy. That's all she wrote Keeping for it classy. the question from hell. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell, as always, wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to me, chuck at thisishell.com, but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell tomorrow. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. In Rotten History, April 2nd, 1979, 44 years ago this week, an accident occurred at a research center near the Soviet city of Sverdlovsk, known today as the Russian city of Yekaterinburg, which during the Cold War was a major center for production of military weaponry and supplies. Okay, let's see. 
accident in a late 70s Soviet research facility in a military town. Got it. According to one account, a faulty ventilation system in a secret biological weapons lab released a cloud of the pathogen responsible for anthrax. The deadly spores were caught on the wind and spread through the area nearby as workers and residents quickly became ill. Local authorities launched a public health response, including vaccinations, disinfection with chlorine, and distribution of antibiotics. Despite those measures, at least 68 people still died, and some experts have claimed that the real death toll was probably much higher. An undetermined large number of livestock animals were also killed. At the time, Soviet authorities put out a cover story claiming that the anthrax outbreak was a natural one caused by contaminated meat. Always blaming contaminated meat. Not until 1992, after the breakup of the Soviet Union, did Russian President Boris Yeltsin issue a public admission that the pathogen had come from a biological weapons lab. And still, to this day, many Russians are nostalgic for the Soviet era, which tells you how much Russia must suck today. A group of Western scientists, who were later allowed in to investigate, concluded that the outbreak could have been much worse. Prevailing winds had carried the deadly spores away from the city center. But if they had blown in the other direction, thousands more people could have been killed. So I guess there's a, a bright side, as thousands more could have been killed. A bright side in this cover-up of a Soviet-era accidental anthrax release from a secret biological weapons research center, a leak that killed innocent people living nearby who didn't know their neighbor was really a secret bioweapons lab. Yes, there's a bright side to that story. It's rotten history, but it can always get worse, I guess. Also in Rotten History, on April 2nd, 1988, 35 years ago this week, a group of 11 skydivers, and this is Rotten History, so as always, an incident involving skydiving will not end well. A group of 11 skydivers left a sport parachuting center near Raleigh, North Carolina for a Saturday afternoon adventure. Among them was Ivan Lester McGuire, and they're mentioning all three of his names, so I'm afraid it's going to be an assassin of some political leader. Ivan Lester McGuire, a 35-year-old veteran of more than 800 jumps, whose ambition was to become a professional skydive photographer. This was years before the introduction of tiny cell phone cameras and GoPro digital recorders, so McGuire had a full rig of 1980s videotape equipment strapped onto his body. But get this, he had already taped other skydivers on two jumps that morning and was now ready for his third jump of the day. That's right, this guy had extra weight strapped all over his body and survived two dr jumps. And this is like the early or the mid-80s, so that video equipment is like beta stuff and it's probably weighing like 15 to 30 pounds at least. And yet this guy sur already survived two jumps in a row. I figured Rotten History and all this guy was done. I figured this as this being Rotten History and all this guy was done for was going to be one jump. You know, like that was going to be it. His first jump and he'd be dead. But he made it to number three. Who knew? As the plane climbed to the altitude of 10,500 feet, the other skydivers excitedly put on their parachuting gear and went through the items on their checklist. McGuire was excited too as he checked his video gear to make sure everything was fastened and working properly. 
Finally, as the plane passed over the drop zone, the pilot gave the signal and everyone jumped out. McGuire's video recording clearly shows an instructor and a novice strapped together on a tandem jump, exiting the plane and soaring through the air. Just as their chute is seen opening, the camera suddenly begins darting around wildly. McGuire can be heard saying, Oh my God, no. A few seconds later, the screen goes blank and the tape ends and all the excitement of preparing for the jump and making certain that he had strapped on his heavy video gear correctly. McGuire had forgotten to put on his parachute. He only realized his fatal mistake when he reached for his ripcord and found there wasn't a ripcord. Moments later, he slammed into the ground at 150 miles per hour and was killed instantly. But most of his videotape survived and was later reviewed by investigators who also searched for evidence of drugs, alcohol, suicide, or foul play and found none. McGuire simply forgot the one thing he needed most, his parachute. The pilot of the plane later acknowledged that the size and weight of McGuire's video equipment was roughly similar to that of a parachute pack, so maybe he confused one for the other, and the owner of the skydive center said, quote, I think in the excitement over taping, he just forgot his parachute. We are all preoccupied with doing our own job. Take this as a public service reminder from your good friends here at This Is Hell, for everyone listening, when jumping out of a plane, that's 10,500 feet in the air, always bring your parachute. Finally, in Rotten History on April 4th, 1968, five years ago this week, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot dead by a sniper as he stood on a balcony behind the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was in town at the request of Memphis sanitation workers who were on strike and had planned a march for the next day. Three months after his death, police in London arrested James Earl Ray, who was extradited to the U.S., where he confessed to the murder, which makes me wonder how the white supremacists who killed Dr. King made it out of the States and all the way to London. Wait, no it doesn't. That completely makes sense. But soon after Ray was sentenced to 99 years in prison, he recanted his confession, claiming he had been framed. Years later, at the request of Dr. King's family, the U.S. Justice Department investigated the possibility of a murder conspiracy, but in 2000, it closed down the inquiry, citing lack of evidence. So I had completely forgotten that there was an investigation into a potential conspiracy to kill Dr. King, and I spent a few seconds looking it up. That's when I was reminded that James Earl Ray always claimed somebody he only knew as Raoul was behind the whole thing and that he was nothing more than a scapegoat, a fall guy. Also, that while in prison, Ray repeatedly tried to break out. And Raul, if you are listening, become a Patreon subscriber to This Is Hell at patreon.com slash thisishell. Now that's Rotten History and This Is Hell. Dan, what is the next interview we are playing here during the This Is Hell the Lost Pandemic Tapes, Volume 2, a hand-picked collection of interviews never aired before on our home station, Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM. The Pandemic Tapes series will continue with an April 15th, 2020 interview with Malcolm Harris, whose book is going to have to be like a Mad Libs for me. <laughs> S is effed up and BS, 
but he uses the real words. History since the end of history. I remember doing this uh, interview originally and feeling like a child because I yeah, had to say right? S is effed up and BS. Yeah. I, oh my God. I feel like a Mormon. Exactly. <laughs> or a Mormon child, the worst. Yeah, yeah. The absolute worst. Uh, what better way to finish a week of interviews from the beginning of the pandemic than talking to somebody about their book and how everything is screwed up? Also coming up later this week, we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell. The winner gets their choice of This Is Hell merchandise absolutely free. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. And we'll be revealing all of next week's guests as well. We have two of them already confirmed. We're waiting for a confirmation from a third, but it looks like it's going to be a great first week back to live shows. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Hill for producing. Thank you, Dan. It's my pleasure. Most of all, thanks to all of you for listening. The future ain't what it used to be. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>